going to jump right into my message with both feet. Uh, in fact, I'm going to start off by sharing my, my text verse for this morning that I'm going to be springboarding off of for everything in this message. And it's, it's out of my favorite book of the Bible. I, I love the book of Romans. I love the, the message of grace that we see in the book of Romans. It changed my life uh, the first time I really read it and, uh, and understood what it meant. And, uh, but there's a chapter in there that's also very challenging in Romans 12. It's a very challenging chapter. I'm going to read a verse out of that. This is from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. It says, do not conform. Everybody say, do not conform. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Everyone say, be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Anybody want to know that for your life? Amen. I think we all do. Any normal person would want to know God's perfect will for their life. Uh, I have entitled this message today, The Normal Christian Life. And uh, I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we, as we get started this morning. So if you bow your heads and pray. Father God, we love you today. We thank you that we can come together like this and worship you freely and with our hearts. And God, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you for coming and paying the ultimate price for us. Thank you for paying a debt that we could not pay. God, we glorify you. We worship you for who you are. And we pray that the rest of this service today, that this time would be productive, that you would do your work in our hearts, prepare our hearts for your word. And I pray you would seal that work in each one of our hearts. And we'll give you all the glory, all the praise, all the honor, because you're the only one that deserves it. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Praise God. So the normal Christian life. So this title is a little bit ambiguous, and that's intentional on my part, because I just really want to get you thinking. Um, because normal is a really hard term to define, isn't it? In fact, uh, I, I would think if, if I ask you guys to raise your hands in here, who thinks you're normal, or who thinks you live a pretty normal life, you know, we'd probably maybe hesitantly put our hand up, look around to see if anybody else thinks they're normal, you know? Um, one person thinks he's normal down front here. That's it. That's, that's about what, that's what, we have a joke in my family that, that pretty much nobody's normal anymore, right? And nothing is normal either. Our society's changing so quickly, it's so hard to, to really find anything that you would consider completely normal in our society because everything's changing so fast. We're in the information age, we're in the technology age, and you know, you got the brand new iPhone one day and three months later, it's a relic. You know, you just, there's just no way to really, uh, to really know what normal is all the time anymore. It's hard to keep up with it. And uh, I think for me, I would even say, it's hard for me to say what's normal for you because what's normal for you might not be normal for me. If I look at a normal day for me during the week, you know, it involves being a husband. It involves being a father to three teenagers. Pray for me. Uh, in fact, consequently, a normal day with three teenagers, there will be moments in that day where you feel like, man, I got the best kids that have ever been born on the earth. And it's also normal in that exact same day to feel like, where did we go so wrong raising these children? <laughs> right? You know exactly what I'm talking about if you have kids, especially teenagers. Uh, it's all over the place. And so, uh, and, and then for me, you know, my day consists of uh, the responsibilities that come with being the executive pastor of this church and, and what that entails, you know. I mean, we only work on Sunday, so the rest of the week I just golf every day. It's, it's great. It's the life. Um, that's not true. That is the perception sometimes. But, you know, my normal is different than yours. Your day, your day probably looks completely different than mine. And so it's hard to quantify exactly what that is, and especially in our society. You know, societal norms have changed so much and so quickly. You know, what was normal in society 200 years ago is obviously a lot of that is not normal today or, or 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. There's so much that's different. You know, in the 1800s, you had to go into town to get to the market to buy something. You rode your horse into town, you know. If you strolled up to the Chick-fil-A drive-thru today on your steed, people would look at you kind of weirdly. 
right? You just couldn't get away with that. It's not normal today. Or you think about the, the 1970s even. You know, if you're a guy wearing a real low-cut V-shirt with a gold chain and your hairy chest sticking out, that was normal. If you did that today, I think everybody would, uh, in chorus, would say, ew. That's really gross. You know, men, we don't want to see your chest hair, right? In the 80s, you know, football players weren't the only ones wearing shoulder pads. Were they ladies? <laughs> if you're too young to know what that is, ask your parents when they get home, they'll tell you. In the 90s, which didn't seem like it was long, that long ago, but, you know, in the 90s, you walk into a store and say, I'd like to rent a VHS video for my VCR. They would say, oh, they're right over here, sir. You do that today, they would say, just how hard did you hit your head? Because we don't do those things anymore, right? Everything's digital now. So society just changes constantly, and the norms are, are always moving around, and it's a, it's a moving target for us. In fact, I looked up the definition of normal. I just thought it, I was curious to see what, the, what Webster's Dictionary would say. And it says that it's conforming to an expected standard. Conforming to an expected standard. It also means typical or usual. That's what normal is according to the dictionary, which I think is really interesting because if you go back to my text verse for the morning, Paul tells us very clearly, do not conform to the patterns of this world. So normal says that it is conforming to a standard, and Paul says don't conform. So we as Christians, if you call yourself a Christian today and you're a follower of Jesus, we are not called to be normal according to our society standards, right? In fact, look at your neighbor, neighbor and say, don't be normal. Don't be normal. For some of you, you might just say, done, that's easy. Hmm? Some of you might, might think that's a little harder, but we're not called to be normal according to the world standards. We're, we're called to have a different normal, a normal that's based on God and on his word, right? And so, and for us as believers, it's very, it's very critical that we understand that, that just blending into society and being normal according to society's standards is not what we're called to do according to the word of God, according to that verse I just read. We're not to conform to the patterns of this world. Now, it doesn't mean we don't you know, we don't drive cars, we don't go to work, we don't do a lot of things everybody else does, but we're, we're called to make a difference in our society. We're called to impact our society for the glory of God. That's what, that's what God has called us to do, and that's what we see in his word. And you know, one place where we can say that normal has never changed is in the call of God for the life of a Christian, right? It, it, the same call of God, the same uh, standard that God has on our life today if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, is the exact same standard he had 2,000 years ago. It hasn't changed one bit. The cross is still the same. The blood of Jesus still is the same. The call of God to, to live for him is still the same. Now, some of the methods we use may have changed a little bit. Some of the, some of the uh, cultural things have changed a little bit, but the fundamentals are still the same. You know, the Bible, this is, the, this is our roadmap for life. It has not changed. You know, there, there's versions, they, they've come up with new versions all the time with, you know, English that more people can understand, a little more relative to the, the, the culture we're in today. But the, the, the fundamentals of this have not changed. You know, the way we read it has changed some. Some people like to use their tablet or their phone. I still like the old leather-bound Bible with the really thin pages in it. I love to run my fingers through it. I, I read this so much, I can know exactly where I can go. In fact, if you read yours on a digital screen, I can find my verse faster than you can, I bet you, anytime. Because I, I know this book, and I've been in it so much, and I love it. And so, but, but the way we read it, or the, the platform we use has changed, but the Bible itself is the exact same thing today as it's always been over the, throughout the years. Uh, the call to worship, you know, God has called us to worship Him. That has not changed at all. You know, the way we do it has changed a little bit. You know, the music's a little different. Some of you would say amen to that. Some of you would say, oh, we should go back to the other stuff. But it's changed. But 
what we're doing is the same thing. We're worshiping Jesus. That's why we do it. You know, the, the worship time in a church service is not the prelude to the message. It's not something we get put up with and get through until we can actually sit down and listen to the preacher. The, worship, the singing time of the service is an act of worship that we're doing to our God. And it's the same. It's the same as it's always been. We're called to worship. And that's why we lift our hands because we're worshiping, not because we're trying to put on a show. It's because we're extending our gratitude to our God because of who he is and what he's done for us. Amen. So that hasn't changed. The way we do church has changed a little bit too, but the fundamentals of church is the same thing too. It's all about coming to Jesus. It's all about community coming together, the fellowship of believers coming together to worship God together. It's changed, of course. You know, we don't use pews. We got chairs now. We don't use the overhead transparencies with the lyrics with the the person sitting up here on the stage making sure the words are on the wall, you know. Now we have the cool LED wall. It looks real pretty, but it's all the same thing. None of that has changed. The normal for the Christian life has never changed. How we adapt it to our society has changed a little bit, but the actual living of that Christian life has not changed. And so what I want to do today, I want to I want to challenge you about what it means to live the normal Christian life. Because I think so often we can, get, uh, we can get a little bit glossed over when it comes to what it really means to live the normal Christian life according to the Word of God. And we, kinda, we can kind of adapt what we're doing to our culture so we blend in, so we, we don't offend anybody, or, or so that we don't stand out. And that's really, excuse me, that's really what we see is not the call of God for any one of us. We are not called to be norm. We're called to change the norm in our society. So what I've done here, I, I, I feel like we have three relationships, three spheres of relationships in our life as a Christian. You have your relationship with God, which is the most important. You have your relationship with yourself. You know, you spend more time with yourself than anybody else. And you have your relationship with others. And what I want to do is I want to highlight uh, one top point of each of those today to give you what I feel is like the normal Christian life for us. And I pray that it challenges you and encourages you as well. Uh, so I want to jump right into that. And the first one, the first relationship is our relationship to God. And what the normal Christian life in that would be, would be our commitment to God. How many of you know we're called to be committed to God? In fact, you are never more normal in your Christian life than when you are living fully committed to Jesus Christ. You're never more normal than when you're committed. And now some of you might say, well, yeah, I'm committed. I'm talking about fully committed in every area of our life. And I kind of want to go through that a little bit because uh, it's, it's important that we highlight these things so we can understand exactly what God calls us to. Because I'm sure you might say, well, what does that look like then, being fully committed? And what I'm going to do through here, I'm going to be sharing some verses, and, and most of them are from the Apostle Paul in his books in the New Testament. He had a lot of wisdom, and he showed us a lot about Christian living because he lived it. He didn't just tell us how to do it, he lived it. And uh, he went through a lot. And so um, I want to read from Galatians, his letter to the Galatians in chapter 2 and verse 20. He gives us the premise for what the Christian life, the normal Christian life looks like. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a very, very powerful verse, and we should be personalizing that verse. I no longer live. I have been crucified with Christ. There's nothing... What Paul's saying here and what we need to understand and what should be our heart and our life is that there is nothing good in me except for Jesus Christ. There's nothing good enough in any one of us to get through this life without Jesus Christ living in us. Nobody, no one has ever walked this earth apart from Jesus that was good enough without Jesus. And not only that, the only thing good in us is Jesus. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I've been crucified. I no longer live. I am dead. The Paul you knew is dead. 
because I have chosen today that I'm going to commit my life completely to him and everything I do is going to be for him and through him. You know, we just celebrated baptism and that's exactly what baptism symbolizes. It's saying, I am dead. The old man is dead. The person you knew before I met Jesus is dead. And what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm showing the world that I'm dying to myself and I'm coming up and I, the life I live in the body, I live for Jesus. That's it. That's what commitment to Jesus is. That's what, that's what uh, the normal Christian life is in our relationship to God. And that's a hard verse to live by, to say, man, to live every minute of every day where everything about me is for Jesus. That's tough. Because let me tell you, the flesh is a very real monster, isn't it? It wants what it wants. And I'm not standing up here trying to be all uh, high and mighty because I have the same struggles as everybody. We all have those same struggles. I have weeks where I, I don't want to submit everything I'm doing to Jesus. I kind of want to do some things myself because I got stuff I got to get done. And that's, that, I'm just being honest with you. We're all, we all deal with that. And praise God, I, I usually get my, my neck jerked pretty quickly to where I realize, okay, step back. It's time to submit this to the Lord. See what the Lord would want me to do in this situation. You know, when we get up in the morning and you hit the floor running and you haven't even thought about praying or reading your Bible until midnight that night and by then it's too late because you're too tired. We've all had days like that. But the, the desire for each one of us should be that we get to that place where we believe that verse in Galatians 2.20 and we live it, that I no longer live. My life isn't my own anymore. To be committed to God means that it's, it's his. He's in the driver's seat now and I'm coming with him on the ride. And that's exactly what Paul has called us to do. You know, the faith that we have as believers that are fully committed to Jesus, is a, it looks like a radical thing to the world. You know, the norms of our society, they would say a Christian that's living the normal Christian life, they would say, well, you're pretty radical. You know, because I mean, how can you say like you're, you're living for somebody that you don't even get to see on a daily basis? You're living for somebody that's, that's in a book that was written 2,000 years ago, of some guy you don't get to see, but yet you're, you're laying down your whole life and committed to this guy and living for him. That's pretty radical in the world's eyes. They look at that and think, wow, that's something. But for us as believers, we know well, that's, that's the way it works. That's really the way to get through life, if you want to really get through life, is to be committed completely and wholly to Jesus. And, uh, you know, I, I think about us as Christians and the things we do and how we live our lives, it should make the world take notice. You know, it should make them think, wow, you've got some radical faith. Not radical in that you're a crazy person, but radical in that you're so committed to God. You know, a lot of you know, I, I spent five years in a missions organization before we got married, and uh, I got to travel all over the world. I got to share the gospel in, I, I think, 28 countries uh, total, something like that, and just had a wonderful, wonderful experience doing this. And in a year of it, I spent in West Africa in the Sahara Desert. And I remember when I was telling my family and friends and people back home that I was going to spend a year in West Africa, I, a lot of times their eyes would get real big, and they'd look at me, and they'd be like, whoa, that's intense. Like, how can you do that? And these are Christians, for the most part, that I'm telling. And they're saying, man, I just don't think I could do anything like that. Like, I, I, that's, just, that's just really radical. That's really, and they're, they're always nice and like, you know, almost like a, a thing of adoration, which I didn't like because I remember, I remember thinking, what's the big deal? I mean, if, if we're really committed to Jesus and there's a whole nation that I have an opportunity to go to and the means to go to, and that whole nation doesn't know Jesus, why would we not, why wouldn't that be more the norm for us? Why does that sound so radical to us as believers when you have somebody that's willing to sacrifice to do something like that? And I'm thinking, you know, I was 25, I'm like a year out of my life to go do this. Man, that's nothing. It, it should just be second nature for us to be doing things that to the world look radical, but to the church looks like, yeah, that's right. That's normal. 
There's nothing abnormal about, you know, selling everything you own and giving all the money to the poor and going living in the woods somewhere. Well, that would be abnormal, but. <laughs> but we're called to live a life that would look radical to the world, even though to God it would look completely normal because we're called to live by faith and not by sight, right? The world lives by sight. People that don't live for Jesus, they live by sight. They live by what they can see, what they can foresee, or what they can strive towards. But we as believers, we don't live by that sight. We live by faith in God and trust that he's going to light our path as we trust him and as we walk with him, right? That's why we believe in prayer. That's why we pray to somebody that we can't see. And that's why we believe that prayer is powerful and that it actually changes something. That's why we pray. The, the, the world looks at us and they only pray if their plane's going down and they just hope they're, you know, they're throwing a Hail Mary, hoping there is a God. But we as believers, we pray and we talk. And if they see us, they, it looks like we're talking to ourselves. But we, we don't, that shouldn't be anything abnormal for us. And fasting should be nothing abnormal for us as believers. Jesus said to fast. When you fast, it, it gets God's attention, you know, to, to tell a, a non-believer that you're setting aside the meals for a few days so you can pray more. They look at you like you're nuts. But for us, that should, be, that should be the norm. That's what we do. When you're committed to God, that's the normal thing to do. And to read the Bible, like to read a book that's so old. This was written over a span of a few thousand years. And it's just, it's been around forever. And for us to still read this and actually live by it and believe that it's truth, the world says, that's not normal. And to that, we should say, good. Because the Bible actually tells me I'm not supposed to be normal. I'm supposed to be weird. That's easy, isn't it? So we live by faith and not by sight. And in, in, the, in regards to being committed to God, there's one other thing I want to share before I'm going to get on to the next one. And that is real commitment to God is a matter of trusting the sovereignty of who God is. Because see, this is something that trips us up a lot as believers, is trusting his sovereignty. It's easy to trust him when things are going well, isn't it? It's when things aren't going so well that all of a sudden our trust is, is being challenged a lot more especially when we don't understand why it's not happening the way we think it should. You know, when we want to quote a scripture and stand on that word, but it's not happening the way that we feel like that scripture says it should happen, then all of a sudden we start to question God. We start to doubt his sovereignty and wondering, why, what's he doing? Why are you doing this, God? Why are you not doing what I need you to do? You know, I think of when you have people, loved ones or yourself that has a disease, whether it's cancer or something like that, and you, you're praying, you're standing on the word of God, I, by stripes I'm healed, and you're not seeing that healing, and you think, God, what are you doing? I don't understand. Why is this not happening? But to be able to say, God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to trust you through it. That's fully committed to Jesus. That's actually living the normal Christian life. To be able to say, I don't understand, but I don't have to. In fact, if you think about it, the fact that we think we need to understand everything about God is incredibly arrogant for us, isn't it? To think that we could understand everything about a God who literally spoke the universe into existence. Literally with his words, when there was nothing, he spoke a universe, the heavens and the earth and everything around it. To think that we could possibly understand everything about that person is incredibly misguided for us. Now he gives us his word, and we can stand on this and we can understand. But this is just the highlights. You know, if, if, if there was a book about everything about the character of God and who he was and how he thinks, there wouldn't be room enough to even hold this book. He gives us this much and we have this, but we have to be able to trust him when we don't understand why this guy over here got healed from cancer and this guy over here didn't. We have to be able to say, God, I don't get it, but I trust you. You know what our, our prayer needs to be in those situations? Is God, I'm, I'm looking for the instant 
but I'm okay with a delayed. And you may say, well, that's not faith. And I would say, oh, yes, it is. That takes more faith than just believing for the instant. It takes a lot more faith to say, God, this is what I want, but I'm not seeing it, but I'm going to continue to trust you. That takes a lot of faith. But that's, you know what? That's normal for those of us that would love Jesus. That should be normal for us. We can walk in that. We have to be able to trust his sovereignty. I'm, I'm just finishing up reading Genesis in my, my daily Bible reading. And uh, I, I, I'm to the story where, you know, the, the brothers sold Joseph into slavery into Egypt. He ends up in Egypt as a slave. He rises to the, the rank of prime minister of Egypt, second in command, because he interpreted a dream of Pharaoh's that said there was going to be seven years of abundance and there was going to be seven years of famine. And so they, they saved up all the food for seven years so they'd be able to get through the seven years of famine. And during that time, Joseph's brothers and his dad, they ran out of food. So the brothers came to Egypt to get some food, and Joseph revealed himself to him and said, hey, it's me, I'm Joseph, I'm still alive, and go get my dad and bring him back because you guys can live here with me because we got everything we need here. So the brothers go back to get Jacob and tell Jacob, hey, Joseph's still alive. He's real excited. They start to travel back towards Egypt. And on the way, they stayed overnight, slept, camped and stayed overnight. And it says that God spoke to Jacob in a dream that night. And I'm going to read you the verse. It's in uh, Genesis 46, verses 2 to 4. I'm going to take a sip of water. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. So you can read that verse, and you can say, okay, God definitely told Jacob, go ahead and go to Egypt, right? No doubt about it. You can't twist that any other way. Okay, well, if you know the story, you know that Jacob and his sons went to Egypt, and for a little while it went okay, but then the next pharaoh actually got intimidated by him because they were growing so fast as a people that he actually enslaved them. And they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God led his people, his chosen people, into an area to be enslaved for 400 years. Now, did God enslave them? Of course not. But God knew they were going to be. And Jacob was in the land of Canaan where God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they were going to have this land. He actually tells Jacob to leave that land I gave you. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt. I'm going to make you a great nation there, and I will bring you back. So Jacob's like, okay, good. Got rid of all his stress, went to Egypt. Next thing you know, they're enslaved, and they're, they're, be, they're living as slaves for 400 years. Now, we know the rest of the story. We know that God eventually rose Moses up. He led him out of Egypt and into the promise or to the promised land. And you know the story from there. And it all worked out pretty great after 400 years. There's multiple generations of the Israelites that lived and died in Egypt as slaves, never saw that promise. And I read that and I go, I don't get it, God. Why didn't you just give them food in, in Canaan there so they could have just stayed there and grew there and they wouldn't have had to go be slaves. Your chosen people were slaves for 400 years. And when I pray and ask God, why'd you do that? He says, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> it's none of your business. If you needed to know, I'd have put it in there. <laughs> what I'm telling you is I want you to trust me. We can trust that he's sovereign. We can trust that his ways are higher than ours. His plan is better than ours. And we can stand on that and know it. It doesn't have to work out exactly the way we want. But if we're going to be fully committed to him and we're going to live the normal Christian life, we're going to trust him in those times that we don't understand. In fact, in Isaiah 55, I want to go back one verse back there for you uh, tech guys. I skipped over Isaiah 55, 9. I'm going to read that. This is God talking through Isaiah. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Yeah. 
That's all we need to know, church. That's all we need to know. We can trust him no matter what's going on, no matter how much we don't understand about what's going on in our life. Amen? So we're committed to God. That's the normal Christian life. The second one is in our relationship to ourselves, we live with contentment. Contentment in our, in our own relationship with ourselves. This means to be, to be content, to be satisfied, to live at peace. Anybody here use some peace in your life? Do you know that, that God created you and he made, he made a way so that we could all live in peace? We could all live content? Now, this doesn't necessarily just mean like happy, like, oh, everything's just always perfect for me. Nothing ever goes wrong. That's not what this means. This means to live content, means to live at peace and satisfied in the midst of the trials of our life. That's what the normal Christian life should look like for us. And another way to, to say this is that we are were, we were called to live in freedom. We are called to live free. You and me are supposed to be free. If you call Jesus your Lord and Savior and you're a Christian today, you, are, you have access and you have every right to be completely free. Completely free of fear, free of anxiety, free of worry, free of being overstressed, free of freaking out over everything that happens all the time. We're free of all those things. Look what Paul said in his letter to the Galatians. One of the best verses in all the Bible, Galatians 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's past tense. That means it's done. So if you're a Christian today, you are free. Now, that's good news. The bad news is a lot of us don't know how to live that way. Because, you know, there's a difference between having the freedom and living in that freedom. Because it sounds crazy, but a lot of us prefer to live in bondage. We prefer to live in our, in our prisons, our unlocked prisons. And you know why? Because so often, and this is human nature, we will choose familiar over free. Because we understand the familiar. You might say, well, I understand always being fearful and worrying about my kids and worrying about my job and worrying about my health. I understand that, and it's almost become kind of a comfort zone for you because it, it just kind of makes you feel like, like it's keeping you sharp or something, you know? Because to actually walk out of that prison and to walk in freedom and not have to worry is a, is a whole new realm for some of us. Like, I don't even know how to do it. I, I don't know that I'm willing to even step out and do that because what if I walk into that freedom and then the things I worry about actually happen? Then I'm behind the eight ball. That's what we do. That's how we rationalize it. I've done it. I know we all do it. But God said, you don't have to live in that prison of fear. You can live in peace because of what he did for us. We can live at peace no matter what. We can be content in all situations in our life. We can learn to have the joy of the Lord in any situation that comes through. Now, does that mean we're excited and dancing around if we get a bad report from the doctor? Of course not. But we can still be at peace because we know at the end of the day, the person with the last word is Jesus. So we can be in peace in that. But we'll choose that prison of fear over peace. We'll choose, we'll choose that living that life of comparing ourselves with others rather than being free too. You know, social media is one of the greatest things ever invented. It's a lot of fun. It's a great way. I got a lot of family out of town. It's a great way to stay in touch. But it's also given us the ability to compare our lives to 500 of our closest friends. Doesn't it? People that you never even see, but man, you can sure see their vacations. And nobody ever posts the, the struggles, you know. Nobody ever posts themselves in bed with a thermometer sticking out of their mouth saying, I'm having a rough day. They always post the picture of them on vacation or all the accomplishments and nothing wrong with that. But we see that and we think, 
man, I want that life. I want that vacation. I want, man, that, that's, that's awesome. Okay, it's time to get the credit card out and put myself in another prison, the prison of debt, because I got to keep up with them. So we, we live not being content because of these things. We're worried about comparing, we're comparing ourselves to others, or we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. I don't know who these Joneses are, but I wish they'd just leave us alone. <laughs> if your last name's Jones, I didn't mean that personally. <laughs> but we're, we're called to live content. Let me, let me show you what it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. It says, a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. That is a power. I could have just said that verse and walked off the stage and been done. You guys would have been challenged. A man is a slave. And women, don't be looking at men saying, aha, I told you. Women are too. We're all slaves to whatever masters us. But you know what? The, this is the thing, church. As, as a follower of Jesus, we get to choose what masters us. We're not victims of the things in our life that are drawing us away from God. Either the Bible's true or it's not. Jesus either set us free or he didn't. If he did, we get, we get to choose to let him master us. Paul said, I'm a slave to Christ. That, that's where I want to be. If I'm going to be a slave to anything, I want it to be to Jesus. But we are, so often we choose to let other things master us. The, the checking account or the, the, uh, the things, the vacations, the climbing the ladder, whatever it is, we let these other things master us. When in reality, the only thing that has to master us is Jesus. And when he masters us, he's, he's, he's really good to us, isn't he? It's worth it to let him be the one that you're a slave to. Let me show you what Paul said about contentment in Philippians, another one of his letters. Philippians 4, verses 11, the second part of verse 11 through 13. He talks about what it looks like to be content. He says, For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. That's the second time he said it in that verse. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. We like to quote that last part of that verse, don't we? Everybody knows that. I see that tattooed on people. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You sure can. But look at what it says at the beginning of that. The Apostle Paul, this spirit-filled guy that had this miraculous encounter with Jesus, is saying, I've had to learn what it means to be content in all situations. If the Apostle Paul had to learn it, you and I are going to have to learn it. Then he goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But you, got to, you can't just take the, the good part out of the bottom and forget the top part. You've got to see that too. We have to learn how to be content. Too often, especially in our Pentecostal circles, and I am Pentecostal through and through, and I love it. I believe all day in the empowering and the working of the Holy Spirit. But too often we can fall into that trap of just wanting that quick miracle just wanting it to be an instant fix. Like, God, I don't want to have to work for it. You did all the work. You do it, and I'll just receive it. And we fall into that. And it's okay to ask God for those miracles. But if, I'm telling you, and, and Paul received miracles. He saw miracles. But he also had to learn to be content. So we have to have that mindset. Okay, God, I want to learn what it means to be content. And I shared with you earlier about, you know, praying for the instant, but being okay with the delayed. God's building contentment in that delay. He's building character in us to teach us how to get through situations. I would venture to guess if you've been serving Jesus for 20 years, the situations you're going through today, you've learned how to be a lot more content in those situations than you were 20 years ago. That's not just because you're older, okay? Age doesn't equal maturity and contentment. I know I got plenty of family members that I can tell you, age does not equal maturity. You could be 80 years old and still have no clue how to go through anything. 
but, but God will take you there. He'll, he'll build that contentment in there. He'll build that, that peace and that satisfaction in a situation that you don't like if we will allow him to. So we have to learn how to be content. Amen? That is how we live the normal Christian life in our relationship with ourselves. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what really matters, right? I mean, sure, we like, we like when God answers our prayers and does things for us. We see really good things happen. We love all the stuff. But at the end of the day, I, my prayer is always, God, I want to, I have these needs, but please, please help me to learn how to be content in all of the situations, no matter what happens, no matter how the outcome is, no matter how it turns out, I want to be content with you. All right, so the, the last and final one, last and final, I meant third and final. Last and final are the same thing, aren't they? The third and final one is in our relationship to others, we are called to care for others. We're called to be committed to God, content with our, in ourselves, and to care for others. Now, you may look at me and say, well, of course, caring for others, that's, that's normal. Yes, it is, but the biblical way of caring for others is different than the world's way of caring for others. You know, the biblical way, it's actually a noun and a verb. It means to be concerned for others, like I care that you're going through something, or I care that there's things in your life, but it also means to make provision. It means we're not just we're not just concerned, we're helping to make provision for others. We're supposed to give of ourselves to those that we're in relationship with. Amen? We are called to be generous. Generosity is a staple of the normal Christian life. And generosity is always includes other people. Generosity for yourself, buying yourself a massage, that's not being generous, church. Okay? That's, generosity is buying a massage for your spouse. Amen? I figure I get more amens out of that. <laughs> but generosity is something that should be normal for the Christian. You know, only in the Christian life is it, is it upon us to put others' needs ahead of our own. The Bible says very clearly to put others' needs ahead of your own. The world says, take care of number one. It's a, you know, every man for himself, take care of number one. If you got some time and some resources left and you want to help others, that's good too. We'll We'll, we'll give you a little golf clap for that. But at the end of the day, it's about this guy right here. But the Bible tells us the opposite. It says, put others' needs ahead of your own. And you'll see the working of God where he'll meet your needs in a supernatural way if he has to when we give of ourselves to others. When we care for others, when we're generous towards others. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and not care for others. You cannot do it. If you say, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, and you don't do anything for anybody in your life, and, and, and frankly, I would even go as far as to say outside of your family, because of course we're going to take care of our family. But if you, don't, if you don't spend any of your time or resources or energy on others outside of your immediate little circle of influence, you cannot say that you are committed and fully following Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you why. Because the Father's heart is exactly that, that we would give of ourselves. You know why? Because that's what he did for us. He put our needs ahead of his own. And you say, well, God doesn't have any needs. He's God. Really? Well, then why did he create us? He wanted a relationship with us. That was a need. He wanted to share his creation with us. And he saw that man was sinful. And so he put our needs ahead. And he came to this earth, lived a sinless life, but died a criminal's death, an excruciating death on a cross for each one of us so that we could have relationship with him, so that the, the bridge would be built to go over the gap that separated us from God. And so God says, if I'm going to do that for you, then I expect you to do it for those that aren't in our family. 
which, which basically leads me to the idea that caring for others means caring for the lost. Now, we care for the fellowship of believers, too. The Bible talks a lot about caring for those that are part of the body of Christ, but it also talks a lot about caring for the lost, because, you know, that's God's heart, too. And we, church, I, I want to challenge you today that we have to be a church that cares about the lost. And when I say care, I'm using that care that is not only concerned about them, but also makes provision. We want to be a church that is about the lost. We want to be a church where lost people will know that they can come to New Hope and they will meet God here and they will meet people that really love God and really love people. Now, are we that? I say we are to some degree, but we can always improve, can't we? We can always improve. It should break our hearts that there are lost people right out here on Old Bel Air that drive by our church every day and have never come in the doors. And again, I'm not talking about making this church packed full of people just because we want to be able to say we got a full church. That's not what this is about. This is about the fact that there are lost people that need to be saved. And if you're here today and you would say, well, I, I, I think I'm lost. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you've never given your life to Jesus. You're not committed to Jesus. Then the Bible does say that you are lost. Now, I don't want that to be offensive to you because lost is actually not a bad word. In fact, if you were here last week, Miss Jessica brought the word on Mother's Day, and she talked about how lost is actually a term of endearment. And I never really thought of it this way until she said it, but it really is because, you know, you only lose something that you want to find. You know, I have never in my life lost a penny because I don't care. In fact, if I'm walking around and I see a penny on the floor, I'm probably not even going to pick it up. It's not worth my time <laughs> because it's not very valuable. Pennies don't do anything anymore, you know? They're talking about even getting rid of them. I've never lost a penny. I'm sure I've actually, like, pennies have left my possession that I didn't know about, but I don't care. Now, I've lost $20 bills. I've lost bigger amounts than that. You know, I, I was in business for 15 years. I, I had some business dealings where I lost three or four figures. That hurt. I definitely lost that. And the thing is, it, it broke my heart because I lost something that I cared about. We only, we only lose things that we care about. There's only, the only things that are lost are things that are cared about. In fact, Jesus talks about it very, very clearly in three different ways in Luke 15. He talks about the lost coin. He says that the guy left the 99 found coins to go get that lost one. That's the heart of God. It says that the shepherd that lost the one sheep, he left the 99 sheep behind to go get that one sheep because it was lost because he cared about it. And then he talks about the lost son, the prodigal son that, that ventured off, you know, asked his dad for his inheritance, and he went out and squandered all his inheritance on crazy living. And when he ran out of money, he was almost starving to death. And he said, you know what, I'll go back home. I can at least be a servant in my dad's house. At least I'll be able to eat. And he goes back home, and before he even gets home, it says the father saw him a long ways off. The father represents God in this picture. The son is all of us. And it says that he ran to him, put his robe around him, put sandals on his feet, put a ring on his finger. He was so excited to see his son. And this is what he says in verses 23 and 24 of Luke 15. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. And watch this. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That's the father's heart. And that is the heart that he wants his children to have for the lost too. Now, am I standing up here saying, being all sanctimonious and saying like, oh, my heart just breaks for the lost every minute of every day. All I do is cry over the lost all the time. No, 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 no. I have days where it's one of the furthest things from my mind, if I'm being brutally honest. 
because I'm a human being too. And I can get, very easily get consumed with my life and the things I have going on. But I'm always coming back. I'm always coming back saying, God, break my heart for the lost. And he has. I, I, care, I care so much about the lost. I want them to come to a knowledge and a saving grace of Jesus because Jesus paid the price for them just as much as he did for me. And we have to be people that are passionate about the lost and care about the lost. You know, when, uh, when Noah, my youngest, when he was two, we went to Taylor. She had a soccer game. She was only six. You know, they play in the, she played in the county rec league, and the kids just run around, and it's kind of chaos. And, and uh, we took, Noah was with us, and after the game, we were just standing around talking a little bit, and then it was about time to go. So we said, well, let's go. And we looked around. We couldn't find Noah. And he was two years old. And we were standing, we were at Blanchard Park. We were standing in an area where I could see 360 degrees all the way around. I could see 200 yards in every direction. And I swore he had been right beside me 20 seconds earlier. And if you've ever lost a kid, you know what I'm talking about. It was sheer panic. I mean, almost instantaneously. Your mind goes to, oh my gosh, somebody snatched him and they got him in their car right now and they're heading down Hereford Farm Road and they're gone. And you start going through all the scenarios. I mean, it's amazing where your mind can go in a short amount of time. And we were running around looking for him and screaming and yelling and asking anybody. I mean, strangers, there were, there were no strangers at that time. If you were standing there, I was asking you if you saw this little kid running around. And um, it seemed like it took three years, but it was only probably about four or five minutes. All of a sudden, here comes one of the dads of one of the other kids that played with Taylor walking back up from the parking lot with Noah in tow. And Noah was just like, you know... He didn't even know he was missing. He had no idea. And if you know Noah, that's, that's not out of the norm. He was, I'm sure he was just standing there. He was like, well, I'm ready to go. When he saw a family leaving, I'm going with them, you know? And when we found him, the joy that floods, I mean, joy was bawling. I was crying. I mean, you just, your, our son was lost and then he was found. And that, that emotion that comes with that was so intense and I think, you know what, that's exactly how God sees the lost. And that's how he wants us to see the lost, is to have a passionate heart for them that it's not okay that there's some of us that are at least saved. You know, we were looking for Noah. Never once did it cross joys in my mind that, you know what, we still got two kids. Two out of three ain't bad. I'm sure it'll be fine. You know? Never once did that cross our mind. We left the other kids to go get that kid because it was that important. And every one of us would do that. But yet, for some reason in the faith, we're kind of content to be our little club sometimes, to be our little Christian club, and like, well, I just want to hang out with my Christian friends, and, you know, it makes me feel good, and we're encouraging each other, and we kind of get this we-them mentality when God's saying, no, 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 no. You should be as passionate about them as you are your own children. Now, does that mean we just, that's all we do is we just go and go and try to win people all the time? No, but we pray that God would give us strategy, that he'd give us a heart, help us to even know what to say to that coworker or that family member or that neighbor, you know, not to beat him over the head, but to say, just to try to share that love of Jesus. And sometimes that just looks like doing things for them and saying, God bless you, you know? But, but the fact is that when we would see people that we know do not have a relationship with Jesus, that it would hurt us, it would hurt our hearts. That's what God wants for us. That would be normal for the Christian because that's God's heart for the lost. He would want us to have that heart too. Amen? All right. Well, my time's up, so I'm going to ask you to stand with me. I'm going to pray over all of us this morning because I think this relates to every single one of us, what we're dealing with.
Well, after we dismiss, if you do want prayer, you can come up. We'll have some prayer leaders up here on the sides. We don't want to, if you do want prayer, we don't want to neglect you that, that privilege to be able to get prayer this morning. So we're not trying to rush you all out of here. But I do want to pray for everybody because I think this, this is pertinent to us. And I don't want you to believe the lie when it comes to the lost. Don't believe the lie that the enemy would put in all of our heads that, you know what, those people that don't know Jesus, they don't want to know. You know, they just want to be left alone. It's not true. Jesus said the harvest is ripe. The harvest is plentiful. What he's looking for is laborers to go into the harvest. That's you and me. To go into that harvest field to share the love of Jesus. So don't believe the lie. People want Jesus. We're all born with a God-shaped hole in our heart. Amen. Some of us have had that filled with Jesus. Some, of, some have not. And those people that have not, they, they want Jesus whether they know it or not sometimes. Amen. So I'm challenging you today. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. And you can transform your world. We don't want to just blend into society and be normal. We're, we're called to stand out. We're called to be weird in a good way, a godly weird. Amen. So I'm going to pray for us. If you guys bow your heads and pray with me as we pray today. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you today for your word. Thank you that it speaks truth to us, Lord God. Thank you that we can stand on it and know that it's not some, this is not some book from thousands of years ago. This is the living word of God. It is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. And it does the work that it is set out to do in our lives even today. We thank you that the cross, that the blood of Jesus is as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. And God, we can stand on that. And Lord, I know you called us not to just blend in, not to be normal in society, but to be normal according to what your word says. And I pray you'd help us in that, God. Every one of us. Lord, help us in our commitment to you to go to another level of being committed to you. God, whatever area of our life we're struggling to give you the reins, I pray, God, that you would help us. Help us to be free to let go and to trust you. I pray, God, that, that the fear that we have of giving everything to you, Lord, that it would be evaporated in our lives and in the lives of everyone here today and everyone in this listening to this message, Lord, that the fear would be gone in Jesus' name, that you'd give us the courage to step out of that cell, to walk in the freedom that you've called us to walk in, that you would help us to learn the secret of contentment in Jesus' name. Help us to learn it, Lord. Help us to be willing to put in the work to learn how to be content according to your word. And God, and I pray that you help us to care for others. Help us to care to be concerned and to make provision for others, Lord, especially the lost. God, would you make us a people whose hearts break for the lost, that it would be the cry of our heart, Lord, that when we cut, if we were cut, we would bleed a passion for the lost, that they would be found. We thank you that you made provision for each and every one of us that would call on the name of the Lord, that we shall be saved. And I pray that you would use us as your vessels to be your hands and feet to bring in that harvest, Lord God. Empower us by your spirit to live that. And God, if there's anyone here today that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, I ask God that you would touch their hearts today. Help them to open their hearts to you, to say, God, I trust you. I'm giving my life to you. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I'll commit my life to you. Lord, we know that as we do that, as, as 1 John 1, 9 says, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can all walk out of here today free with a clean slate. And it's all because of you, Jesus. We love you and we thank you. We give you all the glory, all the praise. And it's in Jesus' name that we